I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week, you have me and you have Chris. Say hello, Chris. Hey. All right. Now, this week's guest is none other than Shannon Smith. Personally, I've been looking forward to this having him on the show since uh, Factory Gun Nationals 2020. There was a specific target on a specific stage that I think it was just plain evil. So I got to ask him how he came up with that devious target. Um, and I'm sure his answer is going to be, well, you just need to be a better shooter. Um, <laughs> so without any further ado, let's go ahead and bring Shannon in so he can tell me what I need to do. Hey, Shannon. Morning, guys. <laughs> Morning. Morning. Uh, all right. So, Shannon, we usually start with Five questions. They're kind of uh, get to know your guests. They're like icebreakers. Hit me. All right, here we go. These are usually the questions that stump people. It's not the rest of the podcast. It's these five questions. <laughs> your favorite. Your favorite movie. Lethal Weapon. Well, that was quick. And talk about right. old school. No doubt. <laughs> That's yeah. more old school than Firefox. Best Christmas <laughs> movie ever made. Man, I'm going to tell you right now, as fast as he answered that question, <laughs> it was just like him being out there on the course. I watch, like, it, every, I watch it every Christmas Eve. I could recite the whole movie to you right now. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Nine millimeter Beretta, book. 15 in the mag, <laughs> one up the pipe, wide ejection port, no feed jams. <laughs> there it. you go. I love it. That's awesome. Your favorite book. Mm, that's a good one. Probably Outliers. Outliers. What's that? Uh, Malcolm Gladwell. It's a um, story on, uh, he did research on basically what makes great people great. So everything from across all genres, Michael Jordan, Beethoven, Bill Gates, and it just kind of a dive into how their circumstances met their means, met their opportunity. Um, it's, it's, you know, sport centric for what we do, but it's just kind of a good all around, um, book on you know what makes people awesome oh that's very interesting most recently though, i just i just read uh undaunted courage which i don't know how i missed that but that's uh stephen ambrose on the lewis and clark uh trail story that was pretty awesome i just finished that one. Oh wow like a, almost like a documentary i assume yeah from their from their transcripts what they could scrap together and i like to think i'm tough man but those dudes were in in Washington, D.C. one day and just said, ah, screw it, let's walk to the Pacific Ocean, and off they went. You know, it was pretty crazy. Yeah, uncharted territory. Yep. Liter literally. Your favorite gun and caliber? Um, I have to go open, uh, nine major and, and an STI open gun. Um, I, you know, I, I tell people this, ironically, I'm not really much of a gun guy. Uh I, I like to compete. I like to shoot. I like to strive to be a better shooter, but not too jazzed about guns in general. But uh, if you if you put me to the question, that'd be the answer. 
Okay. Well, what what is it about that STI nine that you like? Uh, I, I shoot all divisions. You know, if I don't know if we're strictly USPSA here or not, but um, you know, speaking of USPSA, I shoot every division, which is not always beneficial to your growth, but uh, I just really enjoy to compete. I enjoy the com the competition the most. So. If there's a national championship and there's going to be good guys there in uh, the slingshot rock throwing division, you know, I'm in. But, you know, USPSA presents a challenge and the challenge they present, the fastest way around that around that course is with an open gun. So if I'm going to go drag racing you know, I'm not bringing a Yugo, I'm bringing the I'm bringing the V8. So. I like it. <laughs> All right. So. As with other veterans, um, the fifth question I usually tailor to your military service. So I know you run the army. I know you're a ranger. While you were in, what was your favorite time in? It can be a duty assignment, a deployment, a school, can be anything. Uh, being a team leader, for sure. I, I was in for six years. I, I uh, ETS as an E6, which is a squad leader, which is more responsibility, but the um, the team leader element is as an E5, and you got you know three, two, three, four guys under you, and you're really a, a cohesive unit. You've got a small area of responsibility that you can concentrate on. You're kicking doors and shooting guns and, and blowing shit up. So that's that was definitely the, the most enjoyable time. Okay. Now, when did you first shoot? When was the first time you shot a gun? Uh, I was young. You know, I, I grew up in West Virginia as a redneck, so we were shooting out the back door at a pretty young age. I don't, uh, I don't remember the actual age. I, I know I got, my, I got my first gun when I was ten, I think, uh, nine or ten. But I'd shot before that with you know dad's twenty twos and stuff. All right. Um, was it just so? When did you? I assume you started hunting at a young age too then no i didn't actually um i wish i would have but my dad wasn't wasn't much of an outdoorsman um in terms of hunting you know we did camping and hiking and that kind of stuff uh, i didn't start hunting until um it was either late late high school or early college actually uh started duck hunting first bird hunting and then uh got into deer hunting okay. with my cousin okay in west virginia i assume yes sir okay <clears throat> All right, so you were you were in the army. You just said for six years. Now, what was your MOS? Is that what does the army call it? MOS? They do. Yep, eleven Bravo, which is just infantry. But I was in on a Ranger contract from the beginning. The uh, again, this is you know way pre-internet and pre-information uh, as we have now. So, I out of high school, I went to college for a couple of years. Uh, me and college were not getting along, so. I was going to go in the military after college uh, anyway. So I thought, well, I'll just go to the military first and finish college later. Uh, so I went and visited all the recruiters. My dad was a Marine. I was pretty sure I was going to go in the Marine Corps. Uh, but I went and visited all the recruiters anyway. And uh, the only thing I really wanted to do was jump out of planes. You know, I'd never even heard the word Ranger. I had no idea what a Ranger was. Um, but I did want to jump out of planes, and the Marine Corps uh, couldn't guarantee that. The Army guy threw a VHS tape in of – of rangers doing uh dumb stuff you know jumping out of planes crawling <laughs> through the mud and shooting a bunch of guns and i was like that's it man that's me so he signed me up and off i went 
And as they say, the rest is history. The rest is history, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, now I will say I was in the Marines and I did jump out of planes. So that's true. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely possible. They, just, they couldn't guarantee it on the contract. <laughs> right. Yeah, they couldn't. So and I, there, get that. I know everything's changed. I mean, this is a long time ago, but uh, their minimum at the time, their minimum enlistment in the Marine Corps was six years, where the Army would offer me three. So that was uh, a little less committal to that. I'm sure that played into my decision. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I went in in 85, so I'm sure we were not too far off from yep. time frame. So so how much time then? All right, so you got out after six years. Um, obviously, in those six years, you were doing a lot of gun handling, different types of things. But how much time transpired between getting out of the Army and getting into competition shooting? Uh, zero. So I, I got out of the army in 2000. So I missed all the current fun stuff. Uh, I'd started competing in 98. Uh, I was going to an indoor gun range during the week, just shooting handguns. Cause I like to shoot. And again, pre-internet stuff. So, I mean, the internet existed in, in, in uh, 98, but you know, I didn't have a computer. Yeah. Nobody, nobody had smartphones and there still wasn't the information out there that there is now. You know, USPSA was really like this underground cult, you know, like it wasn't in the it wasn't in the gun magazines because they didn't like it. Uh, certainly wasn't on TV. Uh, gun store guys didn't know anything about it. You know, so you had to like bump into somebody face to face and they had to start up a conversation like, hey, do you have a moment to talk about USPSA? And, you know, they take you out to a match. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, there was no way to find out about it. So I was going to indoor range shooting, just goofing off. Uh, ran into a guy that said, hey, you ought to come try this this match is a random dude, you know, didn't know him and, uh, went out and shot my first match in, uh, and that was 98,000 year and a half or so. I just kind of dabbed and shooting on the weekends. And uh, as I had time, which not a lot, uh, with our schedule, I didn't have a lot of time, but just get out, have fun, visit, you know, hang out with normal people, get away from the army people and go shoot a match, go out to lunch, have a couple of beers and just have a good time. So that's when I started, and then I got out in 2000, moved to Florida and uh, started getting into it pretty heavy. Florida is obviously a big, big shooting area down here. So there's a lot of opportunities to get involved. OK, so now you you created Shannon Smith shooting in what, 2004? Uh, I started with what I called a company I had called Fast Academy, which was fast, accurate shooting techniques. And I ran that company for uh, quite a while, just more of a side gig than anything else, paying for my shooting habit. And, um, I didn't really start Shannon Smith shooting as it is now until probably pretty recently, maybe, uh, 16 or 17 mm -hmm. when I was, when I was still with the, um, the last company I was with just as a, you know, I was with universal shooting Academy, as you know, and, and I did all the social media for them, but everything I was putting up was me and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really an ego driven thing, but I, I kind of wanted the Academy stuff to be more about the Academy and my stuff to be more about, so it wasn't all posting my stuff. That's really the reason I started to just have a footprint for, for something different. And now it's turned into a business, but that wasn't the intent at the time. Okay. So it, at what, how far into your competition career did you end up start creating um, stages and, and match directing and all of that at USPSA matches? Well, if you've seen any of you guys have been around, so you know, the type of person that's, that's uh, apt to get involved. And most of us are that type of people. 
so I was shooting at local matches, um, again, of which there's a lot in Florida and especially in this area. Um, the one, the one range I shot at the most, I guess, I uh, didn't really like some of their stage designs. And, uh, this was again, early 2000s. So 2001, two, three, something like that. And instead of standing around bitching about it, you know, I showed up early the next month and asked if I could build a stage and they said, yes. And they don't, they don't often say no when you show up early and ask to help. So, uh, that's how it started. Yeah, you know, no. <laughs> I, just, I wasn't happy with the product that was being put out. I thought I could do better and just offered my time to volunteer and do better. So, you know, in incremental starts. And then the first real production I did was the the monster match. I started in 2004. So wasn't, wasn't too long after that. Okay. So not, not too long after getting into the competition game, you started putting on the, okay. Now, like you said, you were at um, universal for a bit. Now how, okay. So there's a lot of, questions very convoluted but um i'm very curious how you ended up being so integral into creating these matches for nationals ipsic world shoots uh ipsic um nationals that type of thing how do you progress to that just relationships really you know i i was um unhealthily obsessed at getting better at shooting i would say is a good way to describe it you know i was a, i was single bachelor had a a dog and a mortgage as my only responsibilities in life and and all i cared about was shooting i uh, got into real estate when i moved down to florida for really no particular reason when i got out of the military i just thought it was interesting and the early 2000s in florida was a pretty good time to get into real estate you know you could do everything wrong and and make a boatload of money so <laughs> I was able to, to literally work three days a week and shoot four days a week. And that's what I did pretty much from 02 through 08 or 09, you know, so six or seven years, I did nothing but shoot four days a week, dry fire an hour a night, seven days a week uh, for six or seven years. So you have a tendency to get pretty good at anything when you put that kind of a time in it. And again, I don't know that I would recommend that to anybody, but it's just the way I was, you know, it's all I cared about. And uh, so I got pretty good. And along the lines, you know, somebody asked me, hey, why don't you, can you teach me what you know or help me learn how to train or whatever? And that's what started Fast Academy. So I started the training company and uh, just really, again, subsidizing my shooting habit and started the Monster Match production. Um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. You know, I, I, I uh, made the World Shoot Team in, in uh, seven or eight, I think, seven or eight uh, in Indonesia. I uh, finished third in the world there, so that was a pretty good boost. And then won the Nationals in 11, uh, which is really just the end of those nonstop years of, of shooting, which, again, it's not a surprise when you put that much time in that you get pretty good. Um, I always wanted to go full-time in shooting. I didn't even know what that meant, but, it's all I, again, it's all I ever wanted to do. And then the real estate crash hit in, in uh, eight or nine, and pretty much put me out of work. And that was a kick in the ass I needed to, to go full time. So I actually went to work for a, a buddy of mine that built my guns in South Florida. I was in Tampa for 10 years <clears throat> and picked up and moved to South Florida. I worked for him for a year. It didn't really work out. No hard feelings, just wasn't a fit for us. And that's about the time that Universal was looking to bring me on because they'd won the contract for the world shoot of 14. So this was um, 11. 
And uh, so I came on there full time in, in 11 and uh, largely to help with the world shoot because I was a big undertaking and I had a lot of match production background at the time. And um, again, just building relationships. So we did a lot of improvements to the range in, in, um, in efforts for the world championship. Uh, that went off with pretty good success. And then uh, we were just kind of poised to, you know, approach USPSA with uh, bringing some nationals into our place. I had a good reputation with them or a relationship with them for a long time. Uh, Phil, I think Phil Strader was a president then, but again, I was with, you know, with Voight for all those years and was friends with him. And then Foley ends up taking, you know, taking over and uh, I'm good buddies with Jake Martin. So I just, you know, we just get along really well, especially, especially once Mike and uh, Jake took over. Uh, the three of us have a real good relationship, work well together. We've each got our roles. We know our roles and uh, we try to excel at them and it just kind of brings together to put on uh, put on a good show. And, you know, Florida's a good spot. I know a lot of people complain about coming to Florida a lot, which we did for a lot of years. But, you know, when I started, Barry, Illinois was the Nationals and there was no uh, dispute about that. If you want to go shoot the Nationals, you go to Barry, Illinois. And that's in the middle of nowhere, way more in the middle of nowhere than, <laughs> than Florida it's is. But, prosper if you're right. Yeah. And I appreciate that. It's uh, some people are doing family vacation, you know, tied into vacation and tied into seeing the sites. But I'm there for a national championship. I don't care where it is, you know, if I'll, I'll go. So to me, it's about the it's about the competition. It's about the sport. It's about the match. Not so much about the area. Um, and there's not a whole lot of places that can host the nationals. You know, a lot of people don't realize that, but it's there's, there's a very limited amount of places uh, that can handle it. But. Uh, but to your question, that's how I got into it. You know, just good relationship with people, hard work and uh, putting on a good show. And then once my time at Universal came to an end and, and USPSA moved elsewhere, they've they've asked me since to tag along and, you know, kind of do the same thing I was doing just on a different venue. So it's it's worked out really well. OK, I was um, I had heard your interview with Arik Levy a while back. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, I, he has a very good podcast. Yeah. Um, so one of the things you had mentioned, I shot the Florida open in 2020. Uh, that was my first real travel to a major match. Um, and there were some eye opening things there, but this year when you were talking about uh, building your last Florida open for this year, 2021, that it was going to take you about three weeks to build that up. So if it takes you three weeks to do something like the Florida open, how long does it take you to put together something like nationals when you were in Florida or even the Ipsic world shoot? Well, it's a man hour thing is where it really comes down to. So something like the Florida open, uh, we got some help from some, some friends of mine that would come out, but it was largely me and, and Jim, the guy that worked for me out there. So, you know, you only got two or three guys, it takes a lot longer where we rolled into we rolled into Alabama last month for the back to back for the back to back nationals with you know a crew of ten or twelve or something. So that's really what it comes down to. Uh, but again, the, when the nationals were at my place or my old place, uh, I tried to get the bulk of the work done uh, before the USPSA headquarters came in uh, because it was my job. Um, that's where I had to be every day anyway, so might as well get some progress and get some stuff done. And uh, largely because 
I didn't want them coming in there and messing up my stages, you know, so I wanted to get it done before, <laughs> before they were around. Um, so again, you know, that's, that's weeks of work, but you don't, right. you're not under the, you're not under the time crunch where, cause it, we had the range. It was my, it was my range. It was, there was no time pressure where when USPSA is going elsewhere, you know, they have the range rented or, or blocked for a, a limited amount of time. And they're trying to, you know, not, not blow a lot of money. So you want to reduce that time as much as you can. So you bring the force in and you, you knock it out uh, a lot quicker. Uh, the world shoot is just, that's a different animal. Um, I, I say I've run two world shoots in my life, my first and my last, cause I'll never do that again. But <laughs> you know, we were, we were months, uh, months working on that. You know, I had, I suckered my father-in-law into coming down. who was an awesome dude. And, you know, he, we, he and I worked, you know, 10 hours a day, seven days a week for probably 30 days. So it's, uh, uh amongst a whole lot of other people, you know, we hired day laborers and it was a uh, huge, huge, huge undertaking. Wow. Now how many stages were there for that? 30. Mm. Wow. They're in frost proof. Yep. I arrange and that, the, the, the back half, the South half, if, if you've been there of the range was, mm -hmm. Um, was built largely to to get the Steel Challenge World Championship in because they needed the oh, space okay. and they needed deeper bays, uh, which they had. And I, and I think they did that in maybe 11, 11 or 12, I think. Um, but then once that was done, I think Frank was like, hey, we could do a world shoot and kind of went and put the bid in, uh, put the bid in and won that. So it was cramped. I mean, it's, that's, that's the minimum range size you need for something like that. Uh, the bare minimum, but... Uh, we got it done and I, I forget the numbers, but it was, it was a lot, you know, 1200 competitors or something. Ooh, goodness. Yeah. I borrowed an RV from a buddy and, and literally lived on the range for, for 30 or 40 days. So it was pretty awful. Like I said, my last one. Right. Yeah. I don't blame you. Holy cow. That's an undertaking. Now I, I've mentioned several times that I, I think one of the things the USPSA should do is create a repository on their website where, you know, they take all these match or these stage designs, put them in a place where it's accessible to all of the match directors within all the different areas, the different regions. Um, and my question was with as many matches as you've set up, especially major matches, things like that, do you ever get creators block? Uh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that wouldn't be a bad idea. There used to be things like that uh, years ago. And um, but it's, you know, with the ranges are different and, and uh, props are different. And, you know, even when even when we draw them up, you know, I use that 3D kit now. I've done it on PowerPoint in the past and SketchUp before that. And, you know, it just number one, it never comes out on the ground like you draw it on paper uh, unless right like me being at universal for so many years and knowing the base so well, you know, knowing my props so well, I could draw them up and they're going to come out pretty, pretty close. But, you know, I drove a bunch of stages for Alabama and we get up there and start putting them on the ground. Like, eh, this ain't going to work. That's not going to work. And you just kind of, you make it happen. Uh, what I normally start with is a single uh, test or skill set that I want to do. So a, a double half swinger at 25 yards or something, something dumb like that, or carry this can, you know, shoot one handed. 
you know, so I start with a single idea and then really build the stage around that. Or maybe it's a timing issue where you got a tricky drop turner or a max trap or, uh, or I want to work shooting on the move uh, or I want to work distance accuracy. You know, there's a singular idea and then the rest of the stage is just fluffer around those, around those three rounds that I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to test and you throw 18 or 20 rounds in around it and try to make it interesting. See, to me, it's like I, I, he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, you say you have writer or maybe sometimes creator block. I'm like, nah, I think you sit there and it's like you had a sinister. You're like, Ooh, what can I do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's the it's evil like, scientist. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's all I'm, I'm waiting for to hear that laugh. You know, and you're sitting there going, yeah, exactly. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. I might have a, yeah, I, I have a reputation I, for hard stuff, which I don't, I don't dislike having that reputation, but you know, you also, you don't want, you don't want to demoralize people. You know, the, the best guy is always going to win. It doesn't matter. You don't have to make it hard to, to weed out the best guys. The best guy's going to win. Um, but you know, so I want it difficult. You know, my, my, my theory on, on things like the nationals or when I used to run the Florida open is if there's not a couple of targets in there that scare the best guys in the world, then it's not worthy of a national championship. But that doesn't mean everything has to be like that. You know, it's you can make everything accessible and um, the best guys are still going to win. And, you know, a lot of people, not, maybe not a lot, but some people complain about the difficulty of my matches, but they only come to a certain number of matches. They only come to the Florida Open or they only come to the Ipswich Nationals. Well, if that's the only two matches of mine you come to, then, yeah, you're going to think everything I do is is sinister. But you come, you come to the Florida State, you come to the Florida State Championship, or you come to a local match, or you come to the Monster Match, or some of the other stuff. It's not at all like that, you know. They're very accessible targets, and not that not that a D class guy shouldn't go to the Nationals. I'm not saying that he totally should, but I view the Nationals as I'm trying to test the best guys on the planet. I view the State Championship as I'm trying to make every shot accessible for the D and C class shooters. Again, the best guy is still going to win. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I thought um, that well, your your two half swingers got a lot, has gotten a lot of talk. Yeah, that kind of became one of my signatures, so I figured we had to throw it in there. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty good. I liked um, this year's nationals. I liked in that if you started at zone one, that was a good that was a good warm up yeah, for zone two, which was a good warm up for zone three. Unfortunately, I started at zone three and I was like, what just happened? <laughs> well, you got it over with then. <laughs> I did. I, but I had some, you know, post-traumatic shock uh, after that. So for the next two days. <laughs> but it was good. It was uh, very interesting to say the least. And and I will say this. That's why I said when I shot Florida Open in 2020. You know, it it opens your eyes as to things you need to work on and, you know, it makes you think outside the box about some things. So it really kind of opened my eyes and, and helped me with my training. So it was good. It's a shooting All right. match. So I want, yeah, yeah. So I want, I want to show you a stage you created last year uh, that I think was quite evil. Hmm. And uh, I want I want to find out how you come up with these types of things, because you also had something similar at the Florida Open. I just didn't expect this. All right. So let me go ahead. And this was stage 16 from last year. Stand by. 
I don't know if I hit it or not. Stop shooting. Stop shooting. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I, that's what I learned from that stage. Just shoot a few and then end it. Yeah. So mm. how – so, okay, so I'm going to go back for those people who did not shoot Florida Open 2020. You had something similar, and I don't remember the stage. I'd have to go back and look. But you had a steel target or a steel frame with a hole in it. It might even be that same exact piece that was in front. It might be. And you had – you had poppers behind it, stacked one behind the other. And then you had poppers on the left and the right, stacked one behind the other. So you, um, you know, you had to shoot through the hole to hit a popper to drop it, to pop, drop the next one, and so on and so forth. Um, but how in the world? Now, that one got me because what was, and here's where not having shot anything like that before and, and not having a whole lot of experience what got me was the fact that I kept hearing steel getting hit. And for the people watching it who didn't shoot it, there's a steel target behind the cardboard target. So even when you're hitting the cardboard target, you're hitting steel behind it. But it kept making me think, I must be hitting the front side of the target. What's yeah, going every on? Every time you pull the trigger, something rings. Yes. <laughs> and that's what was confusing me. At the I'm like, what in the world is going on? But I... And I should have known during the walkthrough what was going to happen, and it it just didn't register. But so, what makes you think of things like that? Well, first off, we call that the glory hole, and we had a couple of them out there at the at the for range. good reason. <laughs> and uh, so there was a, I wouldn't have any idea where to find this footage, but there is a USPS. I think it was a USPSA Nationals, or it was. <laughs> It was some big match, but it's old. It's like 90s old. And uh, wow. Taryn Butler was shooting, and I think it was shooting through a tire. I don't think they had a steel hole at the time, but they were shooting through a tire. And there was a series of poppers in, in line behind that tire. And Taryn's pretty notorious for spitting out a whole lot of rounds when it may not necessarily be necessary. And there was maybe there was maybe six poppers back there. I can't remember this footage. It was like on a VHS tape. It's so old. And uh, he shot like 15 rounds or something through. It just it was just rapid fire through the hole as, as best he could. Uh, so that's kind of where the steel, the uh, the stage you're talking about from the the steel from the from the last Florida Open came from. And it was kind of a transition timing test. So do you just stay in the hole or do you try to? catch one out to the left, then a hole, then one to the right, then hole, then one to the left, then hole. Um, so you're adding transition time, which is the, which is the logical decision or logical um, solution to the problem, I think. But it's not the right solution to the problem. You know, your transition times coming off and coming back are way more than if you just stayed in the hole and kept drilling it. But nobody's going to know that, you know, until, until you see it. Uh, we had right. a local had a local friend out there who was in the steel business as a welder, and he had access to to um, relatively inexpensive steel. And we were sitting around one day, and I was like, "We need like a, a hole you can shoot through, so we could put a you know we can have a small um, scoring zone on a paper target without having to do hardcover or or something silly with with paint or whatever." And we kind of came up with that idea, and. Uh, tested it out. Cause I was kind of concerned if you edge, you know, cause somebody's going to edge it through the hole and it's going to splatter on the paper. And so we had some rules questions and, you know, we got to figure it out. So we used it once and then 
I don't know. I think it was me. I don't know. I came up with the idea of what if we put steel behind it, behind the target. And that was at a state, Florida state, the first time we did that. And it ruined some people. I, I saw, we saw multiple people reloading uh, on a single target. And then you get back behind there and there's 15 alphas, you know, on the, on the, on the paper. So they didn't, <laughs> no, nobody knew when the first year, first year I did it, nobody knew. And by the time you got around to it, you know, word had kind of gotten out, but uh, yeah, just, you know, something I'd not seen before at the time. And a lot of the stuff I try to do uh, is something I haven't seen before. And I've been around a long time, so there's not a whole lot I haven't seen. But, you know, you look at the Nationals this year, the left-handed reload I've never seen before, um, you know, carrying a big heavy weight. I don't, would you carry optics or open or both or neither or one or the other? Or? I was carry optics. Okay, so, you know, 18 with carrying the can, that was really just for the benefit of the PCC guys. And... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, a whole lot goes goes into something like that because um, it, it was a 35-yard run. And I knew they, when I got assigned that zone, I knew that bit. And uh, I knew the bay there. Mm. Because if you, do, if you do that same stage, but it's a 15-yard distance, well, then everybody's going to run down there and drop the, drop the box and then shoot their way backwards in, in a retro style. Um, if the can's not heavy enough, then you'll be able to hold your PCC up with a can in your left hand. You know, so everybody's like, why is it so heavy? Well, it had to be heavy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a challenge. You know, the PCC guys would just hold, hold the stock like normal. And why is it so far? Well, it had to be so far. Otherwise, there's no option. You know, you'd run down there, drop it, and, and shoot your way back. So a whole lot of thought goes into, you know, otherwise what otherwise are seemingly simple, you know, simple stage designs. And the targets had to be close enough for the pistol guys because if the targets were too hard, then you're going to set the gun down and shoot freestyle. I mean, set the box down and shoot freestyle. So they had to be at that distance where you're enticing them to shoot on the move because they think they can pull it off. You know, there was no partial targets. They were all wide open, you know, very doable shot on the move with one hand. You know, not a gimme, but, but doable. You, you scoot those targets back two yards, three yards, and now everybody's going to set the can down and shoot freestyle, pick it back up because it's just too hard of a shot. So... Uh, a lot of stuff goes into to figuring out how to set those up. See, yeah, again, that's, a, that's. I was going to say sorry to interrupt, Dave. I was like, again, you should be either a DC villain or a Marvel villain. Villain, because <laughs> I'm telling you, it's just to think of that. Everybody's like, oh my god, that's another Shannon Smith. Oh, you know, but it's awesome. It's it's awesome, and it's you know, and the video you just showed, you know. Th the uh, uh, impetus for that initially was a lot of movers. So I wanted a stage with multiple moving targets. Um, the glory hole wasn't even planned in the beginning. We just wanted multiple moving targets. And I think I might've even run out of swingers is why it ended up being a bobber back there. So you know, like, oh, all right, all we have is a bobber left. Well, a bobber is not that interesting. Go get the glory hole. So we'll bring that out there and throw it in front of it and you know, make it an inter interesting stage. But in that in that video, when you when you leave the second position and you come around to the right side, the uh, mm -hmm. the left target was a partial no shoot. You know, we don't just sprinkle no shoots like fairy dusts. Again, those are well thought out. You know, I call them speed traps. And you know, if that thing's right. not there, then then you come around that corner in a totally different fundamental and a different style, shooting aggressively on the move. But you throw right. that you throw that accessible no shoot, not a not a not a dumb no shoot. You know, not something with a headshot where everybody has to stop and set up something right on that verge where ah, I think I can pull this off on the move and, 
you know, then you yak one and the no shoes like, ah, I was wrong. And, but you know, a lot of thought goes into uh, the placement of the penalty targets. And that's not normally something that's, that's done in the stage design. Uh, that's normally something that's done on the ground. And, you know, even though like the, the nationals in, in Alabama this year, even though I was only responsible for zone C in the, uh, in the initial planning, I was there early for setup. And, um, so zone one and two or A and B had already been built, but the targets hadn't been hung. So that's a, that's a whole, you can change a whole stage by regardless of how it's set up by the way you hang targets, you know, and, um, for sure putting those speed traps in, excuse me. And some of them we wanted, you know, we wanted rocking and rolling and wide open, uh, and picking up the speed on stages. And so, you know, as you know, we, some of them we left wide open, but that's where the team comes into play. You know, Jeff, um, Jake and, and myself and, and Troy and some other guys coming, coming together and, and making those decisions. There's a lot of experience, you know, a lot of, and I'm not saying we do everything right. We sure as hell don't, but you know, you've got a lot of experience in the, in the setup and the stage design and the, in the hanging of the targets that tries to get stuff challenging and fun and thoughtful. Okay. Yeah. It almost sounds like there's more thought going into the stage than there is the planning of the stage as a shooter, you know? Oh, for sure. So. Yeah, for sure. Very interesting. So what do you, how did you, um, like I shot nationals, 2020 nationals, 2021. Um, how did you like CMP as a place for nationals? I think it's great. Um, the organization there is, is great to work with. <clears throat> uh, it's relatively accessible, you know, not too far from Atlanta. If you got to fly, uh, you could fly into Birmingham for a, probably with a connection. Uh, it's drivable for a lot of the Eastern, a lot of the Eastern seaboard. Um, and my drivable, my drive, my drive distance has increased significantly since all the Corona crap, you know, it used to be <laughs> six or seven hours if I could drive it. Otherwise I'd fly, you know, now that's probably more like 12 just for the hassle. Um, mm -hmm. you know, yep. so I, I can get there under nine from uh, central Florida. So the location's good. You know, there's, there's downsides. There's not a lot around there in terms of amenities and restaurants and stuff. But again, I'm there for the competition. I'm not there for how good their Applebee's is or whatever the, um, you know, in a perfect world, we'd, I'd like to see them have more bays, but they don't. And yeah. it's okay. You know, we you make it work. Um, the, you know, a lot of things that that cause problems also make it awesome. Like, I don't know if you're aware, but you can't you can't shoot at a gun range in Alabama until nine a.m. unless it's at a live target. So if you're shooting at oh. a dude, if you're shooting at a dude or a deer, you're good. But you can't shoot at a, <laughs> at a paper target until after nine. <laughs> so that's really cool from a competitor standpoint, and that you can sleep in a little bit. But it really hurts the uh, scheduling, um, and it limits the number of people you can get in the match. And it, it, right. it takes on a financial burden because you literally can't get as many competitors in uh, just in the daylight. So, you know, that that's a, a restraint. But uh, I'm not speaking for USPSA. You know, they contract me to help them out with some work. Um, but I do know a lot about what goes into production of uh, nationals having been, having been involved for so many years. <clears throat> and there's just really not that many places that can do it. So it's not like they're... It's not like they're ignoring your the range in your backyard that you think the nationals should be at. You know they're they're doing what they can do to to move around the country as best they can with the ranges they have that are available. And the the Corona thing has been another problem in that because if you're if you're uh, a county range or a state 
to a public range, the, uh, they turn that off the hat. You know, they shut the state down and they don't care you have a nationals next week. You know, you've, that you've been planning for a year and a half. So that, that definitely came into play some as well. And again, a whole lot more goes into it than a lot of people realize. But to answer your question, I like the venue. There's things I would make, I would like to make better, but um, all things considered, it's, it's not a bad place to go. Yeah, I'm excited to see um, just a standalone Carry Optics Nationals. I'd like to see a few more stages, but I think overall it, it'll be good. It'll be fun. Yeah, agreed. You know, in a perfect world, you'd have 20, 24 stages, but it's not a perfect world. So we, we roll with what we can roll with. <clears throat> and that's going to add time, too. You know, I mean, Carry Optics is going to be an extra day now. Um, and... Again, when I started shooting nationals, it was four days before, you know, before my time, it was five days. And I think the, the tolerance for Americans has just changed. You know, now it used to be you hang out afterwards. There was a uh, banquet or food. There was a award. There was an award ceremony, uh, more formal award ceremony. And this is every match, not just nationals. I mean, it's a state level stuff and on up. But again, there was no instant information of the internet. I mean, hell, you didn't know who won the damn match until you hung out to the awards. You know, they, they, the only, only information you have if, if when they stapled up the printed stage results and if it was a good match director, you know, they would just put up the stage results so you could check your, verify your scores. They wouldn't put the final results. So still, you still didn't know who won, mm. but again, you got to roll with the times and it's different now. And now it's like, Hey, I shoot in the morning on Sunday. What time are we going to be done? Cause I got a two o'clock flight out of Orlando three hours away. I'm like, really, bro? Come on, man. You know, it's, it's a, it's an area match. There's a national championship, you know, help, suck it up and hang out. But everybody wants that wham, bam, shooting one day and be gone thing now. And you don't have the, the, uh, the hoopla has kind of gone away. You don't have all the vendors and, you know, we're thankful for the vendors that do come and set up. Cause I think they add character to the match. But again, it's nothing like it used to be. You know, you'd have 30, 40, 50 vendors at any at a freaking state match selling wow. you know, primers and powder. And it was like a mini gun show. But the Internet killed all that, just like they've they've killed a lot of different you know business models. And those places had to adapt and just not cost effective for uh, for them to come do that anymore as much. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely changed then. That's for sure. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not necessarily saying for the worst. It's, you know, change happens, so get used to it. But it's just different. So it's um, the, um, you know, I thought they did a great job with using Talladega uh, Speedway for the awards. I thought that was super cool. The fact it was close that to was the range. Amazing. Yeah, it was really great. Uh, some of the best, one of the best awards that they've had in a while. And, um, you know, they had, they had it at the range there the last couple of years, and that just was less than perfect. And I'm all for informal, but that was a little on the excess of informal. And the one year we had weather come in at night during the awards, and so you, you lost kind of the outside spot there on the patio. And But, yeah, moving to Talladega mm -hmm. was, uh, was great. Close to the range, you know, easy to get to. Not formal, but who cares? I'm not a formal guy anyway. You know, I just I thought that was a really, really great You're improvement right. they did. Yeah. I mean, it was nice. It was only 12 minutes from where we shot because I yeah. shot uh, afternoon of day three. So, you know, it was a Perfect. 12 minute yeah. drive. Yeah, it was very simple, um, but definitely one of the neatest places to go to and have an award ceremony. How how um, 
how long before they had the awards there did they know that's where it was going? Because I noticed when I checked in, they had something on the table that, hey, awards is going to be off-site. Do you know when they actually learned that they were going to have that? No, I don't. That's above my pay grade. I'm not sure when they started working on that. But again, okay. Jake, you know, Jake is really good about listening to the responses. You know, he, he catches a lot of flack, as all leaders do. Uh, you're <laughs> right. not going to please, you're not going to please everybody, but he tries, you know, and that was one of the complaints last year of the, of the, the venue. So I'm, I'm totally my opinion, but I'm sure that's something that he was working on throughout the year to, to come up with a better option. Okay. Chris, you have a question? So, yeah, I got a question. Um, and just out of curiosity with the whole ammo shortage and everything, does that come into play in your mind? And, uh, uh, I like uh, up here at Area Eight. A lot of people you know, a little miffed uh, at the uh, some of the stage uh, counts were shorter, and they were like they wanted them longer or bigger. Um, so I was wondering, did that come into your mind when you're setting up some of these stages? Not this most recent match, no. But um, so I don't particularly care for big. Not big, big's not the right word for high round count courses of fire. It's not okay. my thing. I like yeah. I like the medium to short. You know, test the shooting. You know, if you have if you if you're coming into a position, say that position that you showed in the video, Dave, where you're coming around there to the right with those two targets out there. You know, uh -huh. some some match directors would put four targets out there, and in my opinion, that adds zero to the stage. You know, it's not adding anything. It's just making you squirt more rounds, and you could say that to any position. Um, you know, we did, um, we, USPSA did the two gun nationals last year in Talladega. I was involved with that. And, um, I felt the round count was, was excessively high in that match, in my opinion. And, you know, they weren't my stage designs. They weren't bad stages. It's just same thing. You'd come into a position and there would be four targets there where it just wasn't necessary. You know, you could do two targets or one target and two poppers. You're testing the same skill set without squirting rounds for the sake of squirting rounds. Um, I like the small, I, mean, I love eight round stand and shoots with a timing tricky activator. Um, but the first match I ever did that I ever produced on my own, well, I called the monster match and it was 50 round stages times eight stages. So I know what the Whoa. customer, I know what the customer wants. <laughs> uh, you know what I want, what I want doesn't matter. So I appreciate that. Uh, but to answer your question, the, 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 what was that 20, I guess, when the, when the pandemic was in full swing and the monster match was scheduled in the fall as it always is. And we hesitated on doing it at all. Then we thought, well, maybe we'll curtail the stages uh, instead of, cause that's the monster match thing. It's 50 round stages times eight. And, you know, we got to think about, it. I was like, you know what? Screw it. It's the monster match. I'm not going to change the integrity of the match or what the match is. If people don't want to come, because they don't want to shoot 450 rounds in three hours. <laughs> I appreciate that. And they don't, have, and they don't have to come. And right. we definitely had, we definitely had lower turnout uh, because of that for sure. Um, but that's really the only matches even come up, you know, the, um, you know, if area, if area two did that or whatever area you're talking about, did that on purpose to, to reduce the MO, uh, count on on, beh on behalf of their customers. I think that's cool. You know, you can you can have a great stage. Uh, you can have a great stage with eighteen rounds, and that stage could also be thirty rounds uh, unnecessarily. You know, 
but I hate to say the new world we're living in, but you know, I don't know. I don't know that you're going to see ammo come down that much in, in a, in a short amount of time. It has come down significantly from its highs, I think. And it'll probably continue to snake down a little bit, but it's probably just the way it is now. And, you know, the interesting thing I've seen on the local level is people that have gotten into, into uh, involved in the sport recently don't know any better. So, right. you know, 50 cents, right. bullet, 50 cents a bullet to them. They're like, Oh, that's what it's always been. I don't know. I've been shooting for two months. <laughs> so so <laughs> I, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's going to hurt the sport. You know, we were worried about it myself included there for a little bit, but if you want to shoot, you'll find a way, you know, if it's right. If you're on the edge of maybe it's not your jam, this gives you a reason to get out and move on to another hobby. That's cool too. You know, no harm, no foul. Right. I think the biggest, the biggest issue I think it, there for a while was just the fact that you couldn't find, you couldn't even find components, you know? That well, for, for sure. Part. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it curtailed my training last year from open for open ammo. You know, I've been okay on nine minor, but, uh, but getting major ammo for the open gun was a problem. What uh, was a problem at a, at a uh, level I could digest, you know, financially. So uh, I definitely cut back on my training. So it affects everybody, but um, it's not going to stop me. You know, I'll, I'll find, I'll find ammo somewhere. Well, and, and that is a perfect lead into, to the, the next section, which is speaking of the world shoot. Also, when you talk to Arik Levy, you know, at that time, the status of the world shoot was still up in the air. Well, now, Obviously, you are aware that it's been put off for another year to 2022. Um, but you mentioned specifically something like if the world shoot's not happening this year, then I'm not going to shoot 40,000 rounds in training. Yep. So how much? So with world shoot coming up next year, what is your 2022 schedule looking like? In Because I assume that you'll shoot nationals and that's a, a big part of your goal, but your bigger goal, I guess, would be the world shoot. So how does your schedule and training next year look like leading up to the world shoot? Man, I don't know. I will be, <laughs> I will be surprised if the world shoot happens next year. Um, oh, wow. And I have no insider information on that. It's just my gut, right. but this thing is not going away in 12 months. And, you know, Thailand's one of the worst countries in terms of lockdown uh, you're on, you're on quarantine when you arrive for 14 days in a hotel, they bring you breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and you can't leave your hotel room for two weeks. Oh so my gosh. if that doesn't change, I can't afford to go. I mean, I can't afford to go there and be gone two extra weeks in the top of, um, of the 12 days or whatever you're there for the world shoot. Um, and I don't think that IPSC would have it there if that were the case, because for the same reason, a lot of people can't go, you know, take two weeks. Um, Ammunition's a problem, although that's a problem at every world shoot. But right now you can't import ammo. So, you know, especially for open division, that's kind of important because we have finicky guns. You need you need your ammo. And, you know, I'm I'm as worried about getting back into the U.S. as I am getting in another country. So, you know, what what happens if Thailand says you got to have a you got to have an anal swab test before you can leave the country or something? <laughs> You just, you, you, we're, we're very privileged. And I, I'm not a big world traveler, traveler at all. Uh, I've traveled internationally a little bit, but man, we're privileged here in, in what we can do, what we can't yes. do. And more importantly, what the government can do and what the government can't do. You know, you step foot off this soil and you lose that privilege and you can't, you have, you have much less control over 
what you can do. You know, I've, there's <laughs> a funny story because it ended, it ended up good, but I don't even want to say the country, but I was in a, in a country and for a match for a competition and I flew in by myself and there's supposed to be a handler there waiting for me to, uh, escort me, take my guns, take my ammo, that kind of stuff. Well, he wasn't there and my cell phone didn't work. So I couldn't contact anybody. I explained to this dude what I'm doing and showed up with a $7,000 open gun and thousand rounds of ammunition to his country. And he has no idea why I'm there. So I'm trying to explain him. He's okay. We'll come here and wait. So I go there and wait. Well, it was like an hour, hour and a half. It was a long time. This has been a number of years ago. So my memory's sketchy, except for the ending part, which is very vivid, but uh, (laughs) it it was a long time. That's all I remember. And I've got my bags with me still. So then he comes back finally. He's okay. Come to this room. So it was a slightly smaller room and maybe the size of your bedroom or something. There's nobody in there but me. And it was another long wait. So, and it, turns out the kid just didn't know what to do. Like he'd never seen an American show up with, you know, guns and ammo. He'd probably never seen a gun in his life. So he was trying to, trying to find out, find the right person to get hold of. And then he's okay, come with me to this other room. So he comes out of this last room and it's a much smaller room and he opens up the door and there's like an OBGYN table with stirrups on it. And I took like one step in, I saw that and launched myself back out. And I'm like, Oh hell no. <laughs> And by this point, by this point, some other guys showed up, and uh, but that's where they went to search people for drugs internally. Oh they wow! They just wanted a private private room where they could go through my gear and not have my guns <laughs> laying out in front of the terminal, you know, or whatever. But um, semi related funny story, but you know, so so again, I, I'm you know, no exaggeration. I have a lot of reservations going to Thailand, even if the world shoot is a go. Um, I'm not afraid of the Rona thing. It's probably something everybody's going to get at some point. But I also don't know if I want to jump in a tin can for 18 hours and, uh, you know, spend two weeks in a, you know, two, three weeks in, a, in another country like that and then come back to my family. So, so I don't know. We'll see what happens with Ipsic. I mean, I've been following it. There's not a lot of information coming out. There's not a lot of information coming out of Thailand uh, in terms of the Ipsic, in terms of the world shoot. Uh, they keep saying, you know, maybe depending on conditions and we're getting more vaccinated. And if we reach this point, then we'll open things up and yada, yada, yada. But uh, they're really locked down pretty hard right now. Actually, a, a good friend of mine that's not a competitor is there on vacation with his with his wife. No idea why he wanted to go there on vacation, but he did. And he did a daily uh, Instagram quarantine update from his hotel room. So, oh my uh, and, God. And, he, and he's still there. So he, this is recent. So I know, you know, I know for a fact that you're on two week quarantine when you get there and uh, end up having a great time. He's seeing the sights and doing all the things you do. And but um, long winded story to say, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not going to commit to a heavy training schedule, at least right now, until I have a little bit more inf- information about if it's going to go and if it's going to go, if I'm going to go. I'm definitely definitely on the fence hard about that. I think mm. the uh, story you just told, you need to do like an actual movie about that because that <laughs> sounded like something that you see in a well, movie. That's, that's the thing, man. Like that goes back to the we have privileges and, and rights here in America that you just take for granted. And I'm sitting there like there was a part of me that was thinking there's nothing I can do. Like I don't have my carry gun. Right. You know, I could load this thing up right here in the middle of this country and go to war, but that's probably not going to end up well. And, <laughs> you know, you're just at, you're at the mercy and. You know, other countries, like the first time I ever traveled to a competition out of the country was in Jamaica. And, you know, it was in Kingston, not like Negril. You know, you're downtown Kingston, Jamaica. And when you arrive at the airport, 
and we had import paperwork that the hosts saw it. They all got it set up for us. It was a fantastic trip. And I've been there a lot of times since, but the first time you get off the plane, you walk into the baggage area and there's police waiting there and they know who you are. Cause it's pretty obvious redheaded white dude walking off a plane <laughs> in Jamaica, but you know, but they know who you are and they stand there till you get your luggage and you go open your luggage and they take your gun from you and they leave. And you're like, all right, that's cool. I guess I'll go to the hotel now. <laughs> and <laughs> when you get to the range to show up for the match the next day, there they are with your gun in hand and they hand it to you. And when you finish the match for that day, they take it back. And then we spent a couple wow. of days, we spent a couple of days goofing off. And when we go to leave, I'm like, there's a good chance that guy could not be at the airport. And there's not a damn thing I can do about it. And there's not a damn thing I will do about it. I'll get on the plane, <laughs> donate my $7,000 <laughs> gun and off I go. You know, but there, but there he was and everything was great. But it's just that, that weird feeling of like, you're, you're really helpless. And, you know, if you've seen that, that locked up abroad show on discovery yes. or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's like that, man. Like there's nothing you could do. You're, you're at the mercy and just kind of hope, hope things work out for the best. Yeah. Which, I, yeah. I Which they always have. I mean, I've, I've had, I've never had a bad experience traveling um, to matches other than typical, everybody bad experience traveling stories, but uh, everything's always worked out just fine. Right. That's what I thought was happening. I thought you were about to tell us that the whole <laughs> yeah. locked up abroad. I was like, holy cow. This it crossed my mind, real. man. It crossed my mind. I'm not, you know, nobody nobody knows this little redhead white boys in this room in the back of this country in, a, in an airport. Nobody in the world knew that except me. Right. Well, and, and we met two Canadians who shot with us at last year's Nationals in Frostproof. And we talked to them and they had an issue in Italy where they almost got arrested uh, they, when they flew down to nationals, their guns ended up at a different airport and they literally had one hour to get from Frostproof to Tampa to get their guns because a supervisor said, nope, send them to the warehouse in Houston. And the guy told them that if they make it to Houston, you're never going to see them again. Cause they're going to be put away and, and they'll be lost forever. So it's well, just, I've only, I've only been to, um, two world championships outside of the U S obviously, obviously I shot the one here, but I shot Bali, Indonesia, and I shot France, um, at the last one. And the, um, the experiences are different everywhere you go. You know, the countries are different. The world shoots a little different in that you have a lot of help. You have a lot of support, you know, with USPSA handling paperwork and getting imports done. Um, you know, you, you have guns by serial number, so you can't, you can't show up with a gun other than the one that, cause they have your serial number on the import paperwork. Um, so it's a lot of, a lot of help getting you for the, for the big stuff, but you know, guys that shoot internationally a lot, you don't have that, don't have that assistance and you're really at the mercy, you know, there's, um, and there's always doom and gloom stories. You know, you're, you're not going to be able to get ammo and they're going to, they're going to take your guns and that happens everywhere. And it's already happening in Thailand that we can't import ammo. And maybe that, maybe that ends up being the case. I don't know, but, um, you know, I've always been able to carry enough to shoot the match and get away with it. And so it's, you, you've got to take a little bit of leap of faith when you're going to do international stuff like that. Um, and you know, it sucks that you have to go compete for world championship without being a hundred percent feeling like you're ready and you're in control and you know what's going on, but that's kind of the way it is. You know, you're, you go under four land, you're falling under their, under their rules and, um, just kind of enjoy the experience, you know, have a good time, try your best and, and hope for the best. You know, we got to France 
and uh, Charles de Gaulle in Paris. We landed, my wife was with me. We go to the luggage area. There's nobody around. There was no passport control. I didn't go through any security checks. We're standing in the luggage area. I can see the door to the outside. It's a glass door to, to outside air. I can see it from where we're standing. And I'm like, well, surely my luggage is not going to come off here. And there it rolls. My luggage with two open guns and 1,500 rounds of ammo in it. So I picked it up and we looked around and I'm like, I don't see customs. Do you see customs? I, said, I don't see any customs. I'm like, well, what do we do? And I'm like, I'm damn sure not going to go up to that cop over there and tell him I got guns. You know, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right. So I was like, screw it. Let's walk out the door and see what happens. And out the door we went, you know, not a single person asked me anything. So, you know, you wonder how they have, uh, how they have terrorist problems with people coming to their country because there's, there's no damn controls. And we get to the match and I'm asking around, like, did you go to customs? Did you go to customs? And half the people are saying no. And half the people are saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, you had to go to customs. It was around the corner, down the alley, back in the garage, underneath the basement. I'm like, well, shit, <laughs> how are you supposed to know that? I mean, it was, it was literally, you had, you had to go find customs and do it yourself. And then you got this paper, wow. like without this paper, you weren't going to be able to leave the country. Or if you showed up with guns without this paper or something, you were going to get anal probed or I don't know. So, you know, we come to the end of the trip. We took some days off, some vacation days. And, and uh, it's like, here we go. Bring the lube. Let's go check in and see what happens. And, <laughs> and it was fine. No problems. You know, so again, you just never know, but you got to take, there's always that little bit of leap of faith when the uh, leap of faith, when you're doing stuff like that. It's always a little bit of pucker factor. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so do you think, um, so what, if Thailand doesn't change their situation, but the rest of the, like, like you're saying you can't import ammunition, um, things like that. Do you see the IPSC moving the world shoot or is it too late in the game to do that? That's a good question. I would say nothing's off the table at this point. Um, and again, the import ammo thing always comes up. It's always an issue. Uh, they put a, uh, the U.S. put a contention together to, to palletize some ammo for, um, for France and ship it via ship, like literal ship, um, months and months in advance to get, to get ammo over there was one way you could do it. Um, again, I flew with mine and it wasn't a problem. And somehow the match went on, you know, it, it, it always, the match always goes on. So they'll figure out ways. So again, that's not a huge concern. But like, you know, you have to be vaccinated or you have to quarantine or, you know, those could, those could impact the integrity of the match, I think. And I just don't know who's, I don't know who's going to go over there and quarantine for two weeks um, if that remains to be the case. So I, I, mean, I for sure won't do that. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think anything's off the table in terms of IPSC. I mean, they're one of their charters, one of their jobs is to produce a national or a, a world championship. So they'd have to do what they have to do to, to make it happen, you know. So you could go to a you could go to a country that could readily accept it, like us, for example, or or uh, back to France, or they just had it. You know, there's places that could, there's places that could produce it in a short amount of time. And then I know Thailand's got a big investment involved in in getting ready for this. From what I understand, they build a whole new range and all that. So you could go back in three years at the next time around and then go back to them mm. if they've got their, if they've got their stuff together by that time, you know? Um, Cause I'm sure they I'm sure they're in a financial um, hardship because of this, but it's probably, again, this is hundred percent my opinion, but it's probably largely their government that's, that's 
that's fronting the money to build the facility and to host the event uh, as it is, as it is with both with most countries, you know, unlike the U S where we have to run stuff above board and you have to run it, you know, you have to run it for profit and the, uh, the sports authority of the U S if there is such a thing as, you know, is not stroking a check for a million bucks for us to go put on a national or world championship where I think that happens in some of the other countries, the government helps them with their sports agencies. And um, so they're not, they're not a huge financial loss. <clears throat> so I don't know. Okay. I mean, Ipsy is going to have to make a decision at some point. You know, what I would like to see. Uh-oh. He's frozen. Yeah. Might have a little signal trouble there. Yeah, but I lost all your videos. Oh, there you are. There you go. Okay. You're back. There we go. Now you're back. So what um, you would like to see is? What I would like to see, it's it, the, the World Championship runs on a three-year cycle. And that affects a lot of other things because there's a shotgun world championship, there's a rifle world championship, and there's going to be a PCC world championship. So they put those on alternate cycles. So you've got the, the, the big mother, the handgun world championship. And then the next year you have, and I don't know this exactly, but you have shotgun. And then the next year you have rifle. Okay. And then the next year you're back onto the big one. Obviously those others okay. are smaller matches, but by postponing the big match, they're affecting all those matches too. Now they're having to bump and they're having to, bump, um, to make it work. So it was supposed to be 20. It got bumped to 21 now 22. And I would like to just see it, just bump it to 23. And that's back on our regular cycle, you know, keep it in right. Thailand and hopefully in two years, a year and a half or no, two years. So they have, they'd have two full years to figure stuff out, work it out. Yeah. And then hopefully, they're back to normal-ish, whatever that means, then. And if not, then you make a decision, you know. If in a year and a half they're still in the same situation, then then Ipsic could move it. But, again, nobody asked me. Well, and, and I mean, there's a lot of questions for me about the, the Ipsic world shoot and stuff like that, and I'm not sure that you have any of the answers, but you're moving it to within one year of the next world shoot. I mean, because 2023 is supposed to be the next one. You're having 2020 in 2022. So how does that? Yeah, affect I don't. Th I don't think they would do that. I think they would. They would restart the three-year cycle. So if it did so go in 2025, then yeah, they they okay. pick they pick country at the most shoot. So nobody even knows three supposed to be right now. If they did do it, you know. So if it if it went in 22, then you'd have countries there bidding on it for 25. And then they would have three years to prep um, all the more okay. reason just to just to bump it to 23 and um, and get back on on regular cycle. You know, and all the like I'm not a big Ipsy guy. Don't don't think I am. I don't really care that much about it. Uh, I care about representing the U.S. And if I wasn't on the team, I would for sure not go. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't be a question right now. I'd be out. Um, but I take I take representing the u.s very very seriously and it's a huge honor to do that and i would hate to be in a position where i can't because i can't believe i made the team this time you know i'm 48 years old i shot the qualifier matches just because they were all at my range at the time and i had to shoot them <laughs> um you know unlike the previous one where i was really making an effort to to make the team uh this one i shot the matches just to shoot them it wasn't really a, it wasn't really a thought so much that i was going to make the team at 47 years old or 46 years old or whatever it was so i'm not 
I'm not as stupid as I look. You know, I know this is the last time I'm going to make, I'm going to make the open team. So again, I would hate to forego that, but there's just so many, so many variables coming into play that is not super high on my list and nationwide. You got like 27 people that care about Ipsic. So, you know, I'm again, not speaking for USPSA at all, but from their standpoint, I, I would, I would, I could see where they would not put a lot of effort into uh, doing Ipsic things because their membership just really, they really don't care about it. In, in my opinion, that's why, you know, you look at the Ipsic nationals, it's always been a, a low turnout uh, match and it's a qualifier for the teams for two years. But then the year, uh, the year um, of it's not. So the two years that is a qualifier, you get medium participation because the pros are there because they're trying to make the team. So if the pros come, the other people come because they want to shoot against them. So that's cool, but it's still not huge. And then the year that is not a qualifier, you get nothing. You know, you might get 150 people at the match or something. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's not much turnout at all. No, I mean, the, the rule differences are subtle, but they're enough that it makes it cost prohibitive for Americans to do it. You know, if you if you shoot limited, you, you're going to have to buy or borrow you know, $500 in magazines to shoot standard because the magazines in limited don't, don't work. You know, uh, if you shoot production, right. production will make it with 15 rounds, but you know, you got the going up against race holsters and, and again, subtle stuff, but it's just more inconvenience than anything. And I think a lot of Americans are like, eh, screw it. We got five other majors this year that are USPSA matches around or five other majors this month that are USPSA matches. So I'm not going to hassle with the, Ipsic stuff. Okay. Now, you said about 2016 you you moved or gravitated to Shannon Smith shooting. Oh, roughly, yeah, and it, that was really just start a Facebook page and an Instagram page, and um, again, because all the social media stuff I was doing for Universal was was videos of me and me doing stuff, so kind of felt like I was hogging the, the band, the bandwidth there. So that was a big reason just to kind of get my own footprint out there and start my own word of mouth, you know, kind of getting me out there and not really with plans to leave universal. That wouldn't, that was not the impetus at all. It was just kind of to spread the social media stuff around. And then, uh, ended up working out after I left, you know, I had a little bit of a presence already established. So to start up the training gig and, and that kind of stuff, it worked well. Okay. And, and from what I understand, the, the thing at um, leaving Frostproof was just a matter of it was time to go your own way. Yeah. Basically. Two, two business partners don't always agree and came time to, to cut ties. Was, I think I stole this from a movie somewhere, but it said everything ends badly. Otherwise, it wouldn't end. You know, so it was just yeah. right. time, time to move on. So moving into your um what you're doing now the training moving around doing different um training stuff you said you initially created fast and i know that you have a course fast on your website is yeah. that the derivative of your not, very not a coincidence. training yeah yeah not a <laughs> okay um yeah you know I've, I've been teaching more or less the same thing forever and because there's not that much, there's not that much to it. You know, I don't know how these places have uh, self-defense shooting 401. You know, I mean, it, it all comes in 101. There's, 
there's, there's not that much to it. It just takes reps and yeah, you can learn different techniques and we can push the speed. And I've got a lot of clients that have come back to me for, you know, quarterly basis for years and years and years. They're not getting fed a bunch of new info. You know, we just, we push the speed a little bit. We, we push the accuracy a little bit and, you know, little tweaks on their, on their training techniques. And, uh, so when I developed the fast program back then, it's, you know, I've, I've changed the way I present information. I have some new information to present, but you know, the, the foundation and fundamentals, as I call it, and really are, are the same as they are always been and has always been, you know, I, I, I say in my classes, the first guy that, that, that decided he needed to kill that dinosaur by throwing a rock, you know, figured out sight picture and trigger control. And he threw the rock once and he missed and he made an adjustment and threw the rock again and he hit. So that's, the same stuff we do now it's just more advanced equipment and i you know i teach top of the line military guys i teach top of the line competitors i teach basic self defenders and you know the degree at which i push your speed changes based on your skill set but the techniques uh, the fundamentals of sight picture and trigger control doesn't matter what you're trying to shoot back to the alabama law you can can't shoot before nine unless it's a live target you know if you're shooting a deer or right. shooting a target it requires the same fundamentals of marksmanship to, to make the shot. Okay. I, I, I find it interesting. Has anybody mentioned anything? Most people have a class called defensive carbine. You have a class called offensive carbine. Has anybody <laughs> asked you about that? <laughs> well, I don't, uh, I don't hold a lot of stuff back. You know, if, if it's time to go to blows with a carbine, you better be offensive. You know, you're, you're, Absolutely. Uh, you're, you're taking the fight to them and it's a mindset thing. And, you know, I've carried a gun every day pretty much since I was legally able and never had a, a reason or, or uh, to, to draw or use it or anything. I'm, I'm thankful for that. But if that time comes, you know, you know, you know, you need to be mentally prepared for it. You'd be ready to fight. You'd be ready to attack. And that's kind of, you know, it's a little bit in jest, but, but not really, you know, it's, it's a mindset of if it's time to fight, you know, I'm not going to slap you. I'm going to punch you in the face as hard as I can. And, you know, that's the mentality you got to have. Okay. I started now, a match. I started I a match at, um, at Universal uh, called uh, DPL, Defensive Pistol League. And I kind of stole the idea from a, a buddy of mine that runs a local match down here. And it's a very low round count. And it's designed for your real carry gun, not your IDPA BS carry gun. You know, a real carry gun. 380s and micro nines appendix from your purse, you know, stuff you really walk out the door with. And I, I named it defensive pistol league. And I always, that always bothered me because I didn't think about offensive until a couple of years later. And I didn't want to change the name, but that should have been offensive pistol league. But anyway, I digress. Interesting. So, uh, well, hold, I would like to talk about that real quick. So DPL, what what did the what did those stages look like? Is it a combination USPSA IDPA type thing or? Uh, yes and no. So the the way I describe it is if I was going to go out and practice with my real carry gun, uh, what would I do? What drill would I set up? So it, it was two two purposes in the mission statement. Uh, number one was give people an opportunity to practice with their real carry gear and their real carry gun. Um, and give them target presentations that they're not going to be able to do, replicate on their own, more or less. And then the second mission statement is to give a low intimidation avenue to get people involved in competitive shooting. So if you had a gun 
we had a division for you. And if we didn't, I'd make one up on the spot because I invented the sport. So if you wanted to bring out your, your open gun and outside the waistband race holster, that's fine. Bring it, you know, but that's not what it was designed for. Uh, courses of fire were one, two, maybe three targets. And um, oftentimes just one. And simple things like there's a single target in front of you at three yards on the signal, draw and engage it while you're walking backwards. And just kind of get them to retreat a little bit, you know, get off the X drill on the very, very, very basic level, uh, engage a target while they're, while they're moving. We'd have a, a push over this popper with your hand and that sets off one swinger at, at seven yards, you know, engage a moving target. Um, and then when I had time, I would get elaborate. I, I, I could share a video with you, but I got two of the, you know, those pop-up tents, like the 10 by 10 pop-up tents they use at ranges or the beach or whatever, yeah. the square things. Little canopies, yeah. yeah. So I got two of those back-to-back -back in, in depth and then took the covers off of them. And then we hung balloons from the rafters, if you will, from the rafters. And there was okay. one red there was one red balloon in the center. So you had a space that was 10 feet wide by 20 feet deep. And we hung yellow balloons all down that depth and then a singular red balloon in the center and they're all hanging. We're outdoors. So, you know, they're moving in the wind and, um, you had to, the red balloon was the bad guy. And if you shot a yellow balloon, that was a good guy with a penalty. So not only did you have to watch the targets in front of the target you're trying to shoot, you also had to watch targets behind the targets you're trying to shoot because they were moving around behind it as well. So, you know, just unique shit that I come up with. I thought, oh, that'd be kind of cool. I had the time that one day, cause it took a lot of time to put that together for a, for a one round course of fire. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but everybody loved it, you know, something you're not going to see, you're sure as hell not yeah. going to set it up on your own. Um, actually sounds pretty exciting. Yeah. And from a selfish standpoint, it was really just something that I, you know, I wanted to train myself. So I thought, well, why not open it up and offer that to other people as well? Did you oh, have somebody uh, there? Did you have somebody there blowing up the balloons? Or did yeah, you so me, me and uh, me and my employee, we, luckily we had an air compressor. So the day before we blew up a, a boatload of balloons and stored them in trash bags. I had a student. So another thing I did at DPL, um, I had a student that's uh, is it FFDO or he's an airline pilot, but he's allowed to carry a gun. It's like a flight deck officer, armed flight deck officer or something. There's an acronym for it. But there's a program okay. where re regular airline pilots can carry a can carry a, a sidearm, and uh, the qualification for that is relatively legit. I mean, it's it's a pretty good course of fire. Um, I think it's run by the air marshals, which that would make sense. But anyway, he's been a longtime student of mine, and whenever he comes for whenever he's coming up for qualification, he'll come out and take a course and just kind of brush up, refresher before he goes to qualify. Well, he was there one day, and and uh, I said, "How often do you shoot from a seated position?" Like like behind you or something. And of course I'm thinking if a pilot's sitting in a pilot seat and somebody comes in the cockpit, that's probably going to be behind him. He's like, Oh yeah, we really don't do that. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, so we, I went out and got a lawn chair and we set it up on the range and we kind of figured out how he's going to manipulate his body. And I'm like, well, how much room do you have? Like what's between your legs? Like, no, not that kind of question. Like the yoke <laughs> or the steering wheel or, or what do you got? So, you know, he's, got like, a well, big uh, stick. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, so the steering wheel's here and I've got some controls here and I can't move my knee past this. And, you know, we kind of figured out a technique where he could draw, turn, engage. And he was a, he was the captain. So I think he sits on the left, which means you have to turn around to your right to engage because you turn the other way, you're into the fuselage. And 
So anyway, we spent a day, you know, half a day figuring this out and working different drills. And, you know, so I threw that in one day. We set, we set a chair out there and let people draw from seated and, and turn and shoot behind them. And again, just something they've probably never done before, put you in a weird spot and, and you figure it out. Interesting. Okay. The mind of Shannon Smith. Gotta love <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it's from experience. You know, we, I, I just had a student yesterday is going to, uh, Fort Benning multi-gun, which is a big three-gun match next weekend or this weekend. It's coming up soon. Uh, but this particular match requires slings, which is a little bit unusual for three-gun. Not totally unusual, but unusual for USPSA multi-gun anyway. And the guy had never done it. And um, so, you know, we're rigging up rigging up slings. And I'm like, all right, we'll put your gear on. So he puts on a rifle mag pouch. And I'm like, no, put all your gear on. Because when you have a chest rig on with shotgun shells and you have a holster on with your pistol in it, and you got a belt on with mag pouches, that sling is going to get caught on everything. And there's no way to figure that out until you put everything on, sling the rifle, and let's see what happens. You know, hit the beeper and let's go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, we learned a lot yesterday, just kind of figuring out different ways that maybe not the way I would do it, but a way that works for him so he can get through the match and not drop his rifle, hopefully. <laughs> Dave, you're muted. You got to hit the unmute button. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it helps to hear. Um, I noticed on your competition class you have listed stage strategy, but I had written this down before we had talked, and I feel like stage strategy itself could be an all-day class. And then I go back to what we talked about earlier, like you were talking about uh, that stage at the Florida Open where you had the stacked poppers behind the glory hole and you had this, the poppers on either side. I did the whole transition thing. So, which obviously now learning is not the fastest way to do it. But that's why I feel like there's so many little intricacies um, that that could almost be, if you had videos, that could almost be an all day class on. What do you have to think about here? How are you going to strategize that? Uh, how much time yeah. does that take in that class? Uh, a lot of it we do through theory and discussion because it's unless you're at a match and you have the ability to use those courses of fire, which sometimes you do, oftentimes you don't. Uh, FedEx just showed up and my pit bull is about to bark. So FYI, <laughs> um, it's just a, it's a very inefficient use of range time. If you're on a static range and you want to do stage breakdown, you have to spend 20 minutes minimum putting a stage together. It's probably going to be a pretty simple stage that you're going to break down and figure out in 30 seconds. And then now you're starting over again. And if you have more than one person in the class, you know, if you've got four, four, six, eight people, again, it's an inefficient use of time. You got one guy shooting while seven people are standing around. Um, but there's a lot of theories that, that we work on primarily in that scenario. And there's times when, you know, it'll be, it'll be at a match. When I was working on my old range, we had stages set up. So that made a little bit more efficient use of time. Um, if I was coming to your range to teach this class, for example, you know, and you had the ability to leave your local match up or leave half of your local match up from last week, that would be good. Or you got time to build a couple of stages. Uh, that would be good. But really it's in theory and in drills. And I, I, I'm a drill, I'm a drill based instructor. And I know some instructors aren't. 
Um, some people like that. Some people don't like that. But to me, it's about efficient, efficient use of your training time. And drills are very efficient in terms of setup and the ability to, to shoot them multiple times, even if you're shooting them differently, which I try to change it up. You don't want to just do the thing, same thing all the time. Um, but you have much more reps, much more rounds, much more opportunities for technique. And then when, you, when we get to a course of fire, I say things like, okay, this is where the step draw comes into play. This is where the two of you setup comes into play. This is where the changing gears drill comes into play. And because really all the stage is, is a series of drills, you know, and just how you, I don't, I don't yeah. make up drills just for the sake of teaching stuff. I make up drills because that's what we do in courses of fire, uh, a skill set that's required for this piece of a course of fire. And it's just about relating to the student on what we've been doing for, it's like Mr. Miyagi, you know, show me paint the fence, show me wax the floor, you know, same kind of thing. You just demonstrate to them yeah. how that drill they've been doing comes into play to the stage. There's just this small piece of the stage that they're working on right now, how that comes into play. And then you move over here and here's where that drill comes into this small piece of the stage. And now all you have to do is put everything together exactly correctly all the time consistently for success. <laughs> oh, that's the easy part. That's right. All gotta, that's all you got to do. <laughs> that's it. The magic sauce has been revealed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But to answer your so question, you, it, it, it can be a long course, and I've got a litany list of stage rules um, that I break on a constant basis because everything we do is different, and you know you never know what you're going to encounter. So sometimes you have to do things you're not comfortable with. You know, like you know coming into position, you never want to come into position on a piece of steel. When you're leaving position, you never want to leave position on a piece of steel because you get that steel dance thing going on. And like a middle, a right. middle of a middle of an array, for example, you never want steel in the middle of an array. So basically, no steel, no steel at all. <laughs> but you're going to have to do one of those, right? So you got to pick your poison on, you know, what 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 scares you the least, kind of thing. Right. So I had a question I didn't ask you earlier. So here, here, would this will uh, bring the question in perfectly? So if you if you had a a shooter, I, I'm not going to say like a JJ Ricazzo or a Nils or a Max or anybody, but let's say you had a, an A or e, yeah, an A class shooter that had about 45 to 60 days out of nationals. What types of things would you have them focus on for nationals? Uh, with zero information, you know, it would be just work on your fundamentals and, and, and speeding up your ability to shoot accurately. Obviously, if there's something you know the competitor is lacking in, uh, you would work in that area. If they had, you know, coming into position was was off the pace or shooting on the move was off the pace, you know, there would be specific drills I would work on uh, for that. But just generally, uh, I focus on, again, what I call high-speed execution of the fundamentals. So the ability to hit fast and accurately and transitions. You know, uh, every, I'm sure everybody's got a changing gears drill of some sort. So you have a close, uh, a close big target, you know, four or five yard uh, USPSA target, for example, and a plate rack at 15, 18 yards. So you're working the ability to come aggressively on that paper target, which is its own fundamental. You're shooting that target totally differently in terms of sight picture and trigger control. And then you're working transitions, getting the eyes ahead of the gun, picking out that spot on that plate. And now you're working on a different fundamental in order to engage that eight inch target at, at 15 or 18. Uh, but some semblance of that, 
is 90% of, of what I work on because you're getting two, three, two, three, four different fundamentals uh, and a transition. And then you throw a simple step on the draw stroke. So you're getting a whole lot of stuff in a four to six round drill uh, that you can shoot a multitude of different ways. You can spend 150 rounds on it, be done in, in 30 minutes um, and get good quality, good quality training. Okay. And if, and if I'm involved with the nationals, you know, you know, there's going to be some accuracy involved. So, you know, making sure your equipment's tight and you're zeroed and everything's ready to rock. All right. Well, Shannon, that's what I have. Chris, do you have anything? Anything? One, one question. One, one question I do have is the fact that, uh, so are you, uh, setting up, uh, any of the stages out there in Colorado? I'm not sure if I've missed that one or, or, uh, probably. So I'm not under contract yet for those matches, but I've, okay. I've talked with USPSA and I, I think they're going to want me back. So I would, I would guess yes, but, uh, not okay. for sure yet. And, uh, I've not been to that range. So I've looked at it on satellite. It looks like nice, big, nice, big bays. So I'm excited to get out there, whether I'm, whether I'm involved in the match or not, I'll be there and looking forward to it. Right. Right. I'm telling you, you need to come up with this signature where you need to go out there and on either one of the swingers or poppers, you just need to autograph it. So everybody knows that, you know, what? <laughs> <laughs> sinister was here, you know, I can so. do that. I can do that. <laughs> uh, all he needs is just the, a picture of the S of his logo, you know, like a little sticker yeah. and just put it on the target. Exactly. I had to, I had to leave that glory hole in my last range. So I'll see if I can get some, some new ones made. For, there for we go. Interest. Yeah. Once you know from now on, from now on, if I ever come up to a stage and I see that, you want to hear me holler it out. You're going to be like, oh, <laughs> yep. Huggy's here, because I'm going to be like, glory hole. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, all right, so that his question just spurred something more. I assume you're going to – are you going to shoot next year's uh, Open Nationals then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll be at, um, I'll be at all the Nationals probably. I'm not a huge steel challenge guy, so I won't be at world speed and I'm a little on the fence on low cap, but, um, all the other ones I'll for sure be at, like I said, in the beginning, I'm a competitor, man. I, you know, I love to compete. I love the sport. Uh, to me, it's about the shooting. I don't care what I'm shooting. You know, I always have a, I always have one division I'm air quote focused on that particular year. Um, uh, and years past has been open, you know, based on what happens to the world shoot, I'm probably going carry optics pretty soon. Um, and again, if, if the world shoots a go and I'm going to go, then I'll stay open this year for another year. But, you know, I'm really liking carry optics, but again, I shoot everything. So it's, if there's national championship and the best in the world are going to be there, I'll be there to go up against them. Now, what do you shoot for carry optics? What gun? Uh, the SIG X5. So one of the things I did when I left my last place is I also hired on with SIG Sauer Academy. So I work for them, uh, as an adjunct instructor on a part-time basis, um, so I've switched over to their platform coming off Glocks for 20 years and I've uh, been very happy. You know, I'm nothing against Glock. I love those guns. They're awesome guns. But the, uh, that X5 was, you know, pretty much purpose built to be a competitive, um, competitive platform in, in the production or, or carry optics divisions. And I think it's right at the top of the, of the game there. I mean, the double action guns are a different animal. I'm not a double action guy, even though I love lethal weapon and Berettas, but, um, <laughs> You know, if you're not a double action guy, that the SIG's probably tough to beat in the carry optics division. And so you got to be going back to the nationals next year for open. I imagine you got to be pretty excited thinking four days, 
24 stages. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, again, you know, the best guy's still going to win, but that's a better test. You know, it's a better test for consistency. The the more, the more stages you can get in there, the better. And, uh, it's a little nostalgia and that that's the way it was when I started, you know, I first started going to Barry, that's the way it was 24 stages and, uh, four days of shooting. So all the more you got to hold it together, all the more you got to, your equipment's got to run, you know, keep your, your fitness and your hydration and everything together for longer. So I think it's a better overall test and I think it'll be a great show again, not having been there, the range looks cool. Uh, a lot of people are freaking out about the weather, but you know, it is what it is. Again, it's an outdoor sport. If that bothers you, you didn't take a bowling or something. <laughs> and I coming from a guy that hates cold weather, I, you know, I despise cold weather, but if the nationals are in Alaska in January, I know I'm going to be there. There you go. Hey, big boy. <laughs> well, that's uh, Chris. Do you have anything further, or is that all you got? No, uh, that's all I have. Shannon, is there anything further you'd like to say, or you know, how can people get a hold of you for training? Uh, yeah, website, uh, Facebook, Instagram. It's all under Shannon Smith Shooting, so I'm pretty easy to find and uh, pretty easy to pretty quick to respond. So I can. I've contracts with a lot of ranges in Florida, so we're coming up on the winter now. If you want to get out of whatever cold place you live in, come down here and train. I can set that up, but I uh, have gun will travel. So I can, I can set them quotes to come up, come to you as well. I appreciate the opportunity guys. It was uh, nice to be on here and, and talk with you. I'm happy to do it anytime. Awesome. Thanks. We appreciate awesome. having you on. Yeah. Have a good day. Yeah. Yeah, you too. Take care. See Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs>